Welcome to the City Church Podcast, where we seek to help others follow Jesus in the everyday things of life. Jump in, kids. Y'all can go do your thing with Mr. Buddy, it looks like, this morning. All righty. I appreciate a two-song buffer from all my plumbing thoughts and electrical thoughts to subside. That was handy. Oh, my goodness gracious. Brett, I saw y'all got booted out of the tournament. Y'all lost. I saw that Easton was pretty scrappy at the end of the game, though I watched. He was doing his darndest. So, we still got Tuesday night where Justice is in his postseason basketball tournament, so we'll see how that goes. If they win the next one, they're in the championship. So, uh, money, week four. We've made it this far. Uh, in God we trust, that's printed on our dollar bills, but uh, I think it's kind of sneaky that sometimes uh, we may put our trust in money a little more than we want to acknowledge. Uh, so we've kind of been down a road together over the last few weeks, and this morning I want to kick you off with Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25, where... Um, he says, give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. And those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. The kingdom of God kind of works backwards most of the time. Uh, so it's kind of an upside down kingdom inside this world where uh, it's a backwards way of thinking from the way we're born, raised, and where everybody around us is going to think. So uh, the, 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 the mentality is that if I give everything, then I'll become poor myself. But he says, no, give freely and you'll become more wealthy. Be stingy and then you'll lose everything. It's the generous who prosper and those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. So when it comes to churches and money, it's a touchy subject for a lot of people. Um, probably one of, if not the most frequent complaint that I get from non-church people is all the church does is talk about money. That's the biggest complaint that I hear as to what turns people off about church. Um, it's always the people that don't go to church that complain about that, though. It's an interesting reality. But for many years, um, well, I say for many people, um, I recognize that that's a heart issue that, um, that I can't do anything about. Like, it's just people, sometimes we just don't want somebody else to reach into our life. And when you begin to reach into our wallet, <laughs> that's the central uh, piece. If, I, if my trust is in finances and not in God himself, then that's a really touchy subject because you're going to touch on my security my plans, my hopes, my dreams. So it becomes a hard issue, and I recognize that for many of us. But if we're honest, and that's where I want to turn the next few moments, if we're honest, there are some valid concerns when it comes to American congregations collecting $74.5 billion a year. Let me say that again. 74.5 billion dollars a year. There's some valid concerns when we see congregations handling that much money, right? Um, so I'm going to give you an opportunity to uh, vocalize your skepticism on my behalf. What are the valid, some of the valid concerns when it comes to church and finances, Pastors, <laughs> pastors enriching themselves. I remember, um, and this is a small scale, this is a different concept, but I do remember when I was young in ministry um, that one of my friends, I was going to go pastor a church that didn't have enough people to pay 
anything really. And I remember one of my pastor friends was like, you know, I was at a church once that uh, they paid me X amount of dollars. And when we grew, as the offerings grew, my salary grew. Like my salary was always a percentage of the offerings. Um, And now when you're in a rural Arkansas church and you're just trying to make ends meet, you're not enriching yourself, but it goes, it's a slippery slope that if the pastor's salary is based upon a percentage of giving, then you better believe that every time he talks about money, there's some valid concerns that can creep in. What else? That's not talking about guys with airplanes, <laughs> which is private jets and everything else, which we, we, we see. Where does my money go? Uh, So that can be just plain ignorance on people not paying attention, or that can be a lack of transparency from a church. Um, But there's a lot of reasons that people can get concerned about where that money goes. If we're talking about $74.5 billion, what are we doing with it? All right? What are we doing? Not that we have 74.5 billion. That's like the whole, the whole, right? Uh, what else? Valid concerns. What is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so where does it go? And then we spend too much internally like how does the church in America collect 74.5 billion dollars a year and people are still hungry right like all are we just using that money to make ourselves happy and comfortable like what are we doing with it are we just blessing ourselves is it just kind of circulating we just 74 billion dollars worth of donuts (laughs) you know is that what we're doing Valid concern. I know y'all got more. Let them rip, tater chip. Y'all ever said that? <laughs> I didn't even write any on my notes because I knew you were going to come up with them. This is kind of just like going to the last two, but just like frivolously spending. It's like if that didn't come money, you would not have spent Because I can't spell frivolous, I'm going to put wasteful spending, right? Wasteful spending. Um, We'll get into some of that here in just a little bit. Those are valid concerns, right? Valid concerns. She's still back there. What'd she do to him? Um, Here's the goal. Oh, that was Mark. Yeah, good job. Hey, it's good. It's good. Mark, do you have any valid concerns about the church and money that you want to vocalize? Oh, okay. 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 Um, I got three goals this morning, and I got a lot of notes, so I'm going to try not to chase squirrels. Um, But I got three goals this morning. Number one, let's discover what God has asked of me concerning finances in the Bible. Goal number one, what does God, through the text, ask of me? concerning giving and uh, the church in the Bible. Question number two that we need to discover is discover what God has asked of the church concerning finances in the Bible, okay? Which is some of our valid concerns, right? (laughs) Like what does the Bible say that the church is supposed to do with the offerings of the people? Number three, we need to discover how we are doing and as a church and how we can do better, okay? And I say, when I say how are we doing, that is city church. I'm not going to tell you how you're doing. I'm going to believe the Holy Spirit's going to speak into that and direct you according to what he says. All I can do is evaluate how the church is doing at doing what we've been told to do. And, and how can we do better? 
right? Uh, so let me jump right in. There's a lot of scripture that we're going to plow through this morning, and the first one's Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 through 29. Uh, this is before Israel uh, it kind of gets settled in the new land. He's get, getting the law from God. He says, at the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites who will receive no allotment of land among you, as well as to the foreigners living among you, the orphans and the widows in your towns, so that they can eat and be satisfied. And then the Lord will bless you in all your work. So he says at the every th- every end of every three years, you're going to bring your tithe. Uh, and we're going to store it so that uh, the Levites, who were the priestly people, there was a, we don't have time to dive into this, but the nation of Israel was split into 12 families or tribes. Uh, and when they went into the land that God gave them, uh, the land was divided up into 12 sections so that every family got a section of land. Well, the Levites was the family that was going to be the spiritual servants among the people, and they didn't get their own allotment. They didn't get their own inheritance. They were dependent upon everybody else because they were serving in the, uh, when everybody else was out growing their crops, they were ministering to the people. So they weren't there for profit. They were dependent upon the people bringing in part of their produce so that they could share in it, okay? Uh, and it says, as for the tribe of, this Numbers 18, verse 21, it says, as for that tribe, the tribe of Levi, they're, they're your relatives, he says, I will compensate them for their service in the tabernacle. Instead of an allotment of land, I will give them the tithes from the entire land of Israel. Exactly what I just said. Should have just read the passage instead of telling you my own version. Um, By the time of Jesus, these instructions had been around for nearly 1,500 years, okay? Uh, And the the concept of a tithe had been around considerably longer than that. Because we see even back in the days of Abraham, which is, I don't know, about 1,000 years before what we're talking about here, uh, 500, I don't even remember. I looked at a timeline this week. But nevertheless, even in the time of Abraham, the concept of a tithe was existent, okay? So what is a tithe? At the end of every harvest, every three years, that one specifically said every three years, but he said bring a tithe, and a tithe is 10%, okay? 10%, just so we're all working with the same definitions. 10% of what you produce so the nation of Israel was not a financial uh, economy dependent upon a financial system, dollar bills, coins, and things like that. They, they did not have a financial system. They had an agricultural system. So they didn't bring in 10% of their paycheck. They brought in 10% of their wheat, 10% of their harvest, 10% of their crops. Okay. Uh, so at the end of the harvest, they load up 10% of everything they collect and they take it to the temple storehouse where the whole nation uh, has these storages, storehouses, and from that they provide for the Levitical family and the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Okay? That's the storehouse that provides for those people groups. These passages are really clear when it comes to the Old Testament purpose of the tithe. The Levite tribe is number one. They're the spiritual leadership of the people, dependent upon the tithe. Since they weren't given an inheritance, they didn't go to work every day the same way that everybody else did. So when when we're out building houses, being a doctor, going to school, getting an education so that we can go be profitable. They didn't do that. They were educated in the law of the Lord so that they could spiritually minister to the people. I guess that's where the whole concept of a non-profit, right? Second part of what these passages told us, provide for the needs of what I'm calling displaced people. So let me write these. Uh, the Levites are the spiritual leaders 
And I don't even know if displaced is the correct, but it's the one that made sense in my head. So when we say displaced peoples, we're talking about people that don't have the support system as everybody else does, widows, orphans, uh, people that are foreigners, that, that don't have homes, they don't have things that uh, most of us have from the structure that comes from having a head of household, having providers in our home. We're dependent upon somebody else to provide for us because we don't have the means to on our own. Okay, So that's really the Old Testament concept of giving is everybody brings in 10%. What are we going to use that 10% for? For our spiritual leaders and displaced people groups. That's it. That's the goal. That's what we're doing with it according to the law of Moses. Okay? That's easy enough to understand. But the problem is that we aren't ancient Israel. Right? It's like we're not ancient Israel. Uh, we don't have a temple, a priest, or a storehouse. So we deal in currency and not crops. Um, so the question that we're left with is, okay, that's, that's easy enough as to what God asked of ancient Israel, but what has God asked of the 21st century American church? All right? How does this translate to the 21st century American church, and what has he asked of us? Um, before we address that question, uh, I want to address some of the history that makes that question a touchy subject for a lot of us, okay? Uh, the turn of the page from B.C. to A.D. or whatever you're supposed to call that these days, B.C.E., uh, what's A.D. turned into? Anybody C.E.? I don't know, I just, I, I get, like, I had somebody explain it to me the other day, and it makes sense. Uh, but I've always said B.C. and A.D., so it's hard to break that habit. Uh, so when we turn the page from B.C. to A.D., we find the New Testament church functioning uh, pretty much in many respects the exact same way as the nation of Israel did. So in case you don't know your Bible, the Old Testament was about the history of the nation of Israel, how God chose Abraham, rose up, grew a people, gave him a home, did all these things, and he said eventually through this nation, I'm going to bless every nation on earth. That's fulfilled through Jesus in the New Testament. So when you turn the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, uh, you're going from Israel to Jesus, who was from Israel, but you're also going from, in some ways, in an oversimplified way, B.C. to A.D., okay? That's an oversimplification of that, but that's pretty much the gist of it. So when we go from B.C. and Israel to A.D., and now we're talking about church, the church continues to function in, in a lot of ways exactly like the nation of Israel did. In Acts chapter 4, we see that there were no needy people among them because those who owned land and houses would sell them, and they brought the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Okay, So no displaced people groups, widows, orphans, foreigners, all the things going on, None of those had any needs. Why? Because those that had property or values or whatever would sell them, bring it to the apostles, and they provided for the needs of the people, very much the same way as they did in the Old Testament. But instead of a temple storehouse and a priest, the apostles became the financial conduit for the church. And since the world had evolved, um, they funneled currency instead of crops, okay? So we see some transitions taking place. Don't bring it to the temple, bring it to the apostles. You're not bringing your wheat, you're bringing your denarius, okay? So, but same purpose, same concept. Continuing the trend um, that was started in the Old Testament, the church had the needs of displaced people as one of their greatest priorities. Widows, orphans, foreigners, people that don't have the structure to provide for themselves, making sure that nobody's left out. That was one of the highest priorities of the first century church, just as it was for the nation of Israel. We're not going to let anybody have a need when we have resources. Doesn't make sense. Um, so they continued that age-old tradition. And since, um, oh, where did I go? Uh, one 
really big trade-off <laughs> comes, we go from the elaborate temple and priest, which if you've studied the temple in the Old Testament, it's like, man, that joker was elaborate, fancy. Took a lot of gold, a lot of resources to build that thing. And then we got the priest, and by the time we get to the time of Jesus, them priests are flying private jets. I mean, it's like the, it's an elaborate system. They didn't have private jets. That was somewhat of a... But we go from that to house churches and homeless missionaries. So when we go from B.C. to A.D., temple and priest, very elaborate, to now we're in the first century church and we have house churches and missionaries that have no homes. And we're like, hmm. It, it, it's, a, it's a whole different structure. So, <laughs> most of y'all know that I've turned into a nerd of history in my old age. Some of that's going to come in really valuable right now. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> here's a few things. Um, one of the things that, thank goodness that Shelly enjoys with me, is, is old things. We love old things, um, especially old buildings and old architecture, Right? Uh, so Central Arkansas is about the least historic place on the planet. Uh, so that's a bit of a struggle for people like us that like old stuff. Um, and we don't get to travel as much as I once did. So I'm kind of forced to rely on audiobooks, photography, and videos, and the Internet, and all those fun things. Um, so I want to show you some of the things that I've learned in recent history. Uh, did you get those pictures out of there? I am so glad that you looked for those. So let's go to the first picture. I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing this, uh, but it's a cathedral that dates back to the 4th century in Armenia. Okay? So this is 300 years post-New Testament. It's beautiful. Like, it's incredible. This thing is 1,700 years old. At least part of it is. I know it's been touched over and over and over and over. And then you go to the next picture, which is the inside of part of that building. And I don't begin to think that they painted all those things in 300, B, in 300 AD, but over the course of time, it became more and more elaborate, and it becomes what it is today, which is extremely beautiful. Um, so that's, that's 300 years post-New Testament. And now let's go to the next one, which I can pronounce. Westminster Abbey, which um, you probably know from the royal family. Um, but this one is in London, 13th century. Okay? Look at the detail and the architecture of the Gothic style that became popular at that time in history. It's incredible what churches were able to build. Some of you put dots together just like I do, and you're wondering, how the heck did we go from house churches and homeless missionaries to this? You're like, within 300 years, we went from house churches to cathedrals. That's a big change. That's a massive, it's, it's, it's almost like we're building a temple in every city. And it's an incredible transition again. Long story made short is that for 300 years there was an intense level of persecution for the Christian faith. And when Constantine in the 300s decides that he wants to be Christian friendly, now the most powerful man in the world opens the gates to the Christians and when the most powerful man in the world gives you his approval, there's a lot of money that comes with that and a lot of resources that come with that. So we go from underground house churches to now on the public stage with the approval of the most powerful man in the most powerful empire in the world. Start building you guys some buildings. I got resources. And now this house church, homeless missionary faith 
has an influx of wealth and things dramatically change and look different than they once did. Big money starts flowing fast. Um, and in many respects, some of the trends that were started in the fourth century are still in motion today, right? Some of those trends have never stopped. Uh, we have large and elaborate buildings that are still more common than house churches, right? You ever, you, you, you got any friends that do house churches? He's like, where do you go to church? Well, I got a buddy. I'm, no, no, no joking aside. I got a buddy that, uh, been a ministry in this town together for a long time. Uh, he started a church about 12 years ago. And then I looked up and I noticed that the church had uh, been taken over by a daycare. I'm like, well, yes, the church folded and they packed up and went home. And then I ran into him one day. I was like, hey, what's going on with the church? He's like, oh, we, we rented the building out to the daycare and we started meeting in houses. <laughs> and you're like, that's different. Like we started in houses, right? There was a time that we were meeting in houses, and you know the tension that comes from meeting in houses. It's like half of you would have never shown up if we'd have stayed in the houses because you're not going to somebody's house, right? It's less common than big, fancy, elaborate buildings. So that trend is still in motion today. And though priests... Um, <laughs> the starting in the fourth century, moving on for a really long time, the priest uh, had like this far-reaching power and wealth at their disposal. I had no idea, but the priest or the, the pope was actually um, the king of a territory for hundreds of years. <laughs> like it's just the power and the wealth that was funneled into and through the church was really, really a lot. And although we don't have the same thing, um, the same amount of power and the same amount of wealth that flows through some of these things, we do observe a lot of wealth among Christian leadership at some times. Right? That was kind of what one of y'all alluded to earlier. I was in Chicago. I think I've told this story before, but Half of you didn't hear it, so here we go again. In a Chicago hotel a number a few years ago, um, I was just hanging out, waiting on my thing to happen. Um, I bumped into a lady. We got to chatting. She was, um, uh, this is going to sound like I don't know anything, which is 100% true, some sort of Asian background, so I didn't know really where she originated from, um, but she had that background. And <clears throat> she was a world traveler, had homes in multiple states and multiple continents. She was a wealthy lady. She had seen the world, and she was just, she was going and blowing. And um, as we sat and chatted for a while, it eventually crossed conversation that I was a pastor, and I swear to you, the first words out of her mouth was like, oh, like Joel Osteen. And I was like, not exactly. Like, I don't have jets. I have kids. I got two jobs. I got four kids. I got no money. Um, a little different than Joel, right? We don't have 50,000 people on a weekend. We got 20 people meeting in my house. A little bit different. But the only concept of Christian leadership that she could think of was private jets and arenas full of people. That was the only reference point that she had. That was it. That was the only Christian leader that she had ever been exposed to. So there are people in the world that still believe Christian leadership equals great wealth. There are still people that that's the only concept they have of pastors. Okay? From the inside of Christian leadership. I know, and you know, that wealthy pastors like Joel are the exception to the rule. But from the outside looking in, she assumed that he is the norm. All pastors got private jets, fly all over the world. 
This leaves some valid concerns for people when it comes to the church and money, okay? I want to come full circle. So let's answer the questions that we came to answer. Number one, what did God ask of me concerning finances in the Bible? We're going to set aside concerns, set aside any stories we know, anything. What has God, through the text, asked of each one of us concerning finances and giving in the church and how things work? Although the New Testament does not repeat the tithing command and instructions quite as directly as the Old Testament does, we know for a fact that the trend was continued by the apostles and was even affirmed by Jesus. Because when Jesus was talking to the hypocritical spiritual leaders of his day, who reached into the back of their pantry and in their private family gardens and made sure that they tithed off of everything, he's like, you guys... You need to continue tithing, but you need to begin to apply the more important things like justice, mercy, and truth. He didn't say quit tithing. He said continue tithing, but begin to apply the more important issues, justice, mercy, and truth, and faith. So we know through the scriptures that the concept of a tithe has not been erased from history, still in place, still instructed, still applied. I had a friend when I first got into ministry, he was kind of a jerk. He's like one of the, he's a really good guy. Let me back up. A really good guy. But every time he opened his mouth, he sounded like a jerk. Um, you just know people like that. I'm, I'm, I'm that kind of person to a lot of people. Um, but we let him preach at our church every now and then that, that I was serving at. And, and he always talked about money because that, that was his thing that he, he, he liked to beat people up with. And he said, a tithe is a really good place to start. It's a good place to start. He expected that we can start at 10%, but our generosity is going to increase from there. That was, that was his line that he always leaned on. A tithe, that's a really good place to start. Moving on. <laughs> so, number two, what has God asked of the church concerning finances in the Bible? If I'm going to give 10% of my income, like, what are y'all going to do with it? Are you, if, if I'm going to function in a biblical fashion, is the church going to function in a biblical fashion? The list of what the church is supposed to do with money is still a pretty short one. When you combine the Old Testament and the New Testament and you put all these things together, we still have the support of spiritual leaders. We still have providing the needs of displaced peoples. But we also have one more thing that is kind of Uh, it's, it's spoken without being spoken, and that is, there is the whole concept of worship centers, buildings, meeting places, okay? Why do I say that? Because the Old Testament, the, 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 the offerings and the tithes and the people's generosity went towards building the temple. Um, now, we didn't have worship centers in the first century church, so we should never have them again. Well, they didn't, they weren't allowed to have them because they would have been killed and burned down. It's not that they didn't want a public place to meet. They weren't allowed to have a public place to meet. So it's never been condemned by God or the text for us to have a building, okay? When we open up into the first century church, though, why does it not exist? Because they couldn't. Right? You still hear about churches getting burned in various parts of the world and Christians being killed for meeting in public. Same thing. That was the context here. Why didn't they have a meeting place in public? Because it would have got burned down immediately and they'd all been killed. So, um, approved, obviously, in the Old Testament, never discouraged in the New Testament, just not possible. Uh, this got me to thinking. 
where are American churches spending $74.5 billion a year? I got a cute little, did that graph make it onto us? Man, you're on point. Where are finances being spent on average in the American church? Almost 50% goes to spiritual leaders, personnel. Uh, 23% goes down here to facilities. 11% missions. That's other people doing the work of ministry like homeless missionaries, right? Uh, They want to move, they want to go, and they want to start something like we started this at one point. People financially supported to get it rolling. 11% goes to that. Uh, 10% goes to programs, which is your everything that you do inside the church, and 6% goes to your uh, technology dues. I don't know, whatever dues come, whatever fits into that category, right? Um, so you look at that, and you're like, okay. I always looked at the missions as like the church's tithe. So like we're not going to keep that. It's like if people tithe to the church, and they're expected to live off of God's provision, 90% of God's provisions, then surely the church could do the same thing and tithe off of its offerings and give it back and continue to be a reproducing type of mentality. That's kind of what I've always looked at missions at. I don't know if that's right, but that's the way it clicks in my brain. Um, So I don't see anything on here that's like evil, wrong, right? Is it a lot of money to go to staff? Yeah, but staff has to live, right? If they're not out producing profit just like you do every day, they still got to feed family, still got to have a roof, still got to do all these things, and life is not cheap. So um, we can debate all day long about the choices that other churches and other leaders make, but we're not going to do that because we don't do that kind of thing. (laughs) This chart is simply a reference point as we look into one more variable that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says this in verses 7 through 18. He says, what soldier has to pay his own expense? What farmer pay, plants a vineyard and doesn't get, have the right to eat some of its fruit? Like what shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Am I expressing merely a human opinion, or does the law of God say the same thing? For the law of Moses says, you must not muzzle the ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. We could go through that, but we're not going to right now. He says, "What God was God only thinking about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us, so that the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share of of the harvest. Since we have planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than to be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings? And in the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Yes, I've never used any of these rights. And I am not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. In fact, I'd rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I'm just compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. If I were doing this on my own initiative, I'd deserve payment. But I have no choice, for God has given me a sacred trust. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my right when I preach the good news. Uh, That's a lot of stuff. All that say this. I have received my finances from ministry in the past. Okay? Uh, I had, I was right in doing so. 
right? I've been a full-time pastor at a church, and that was my only income, and I was right in doing so. Our church supports two guys at a minimal level, but we are right for doing so, right? It's a, it's, it's, it's a part-time of a part-time level, but the support that we provide to those two men is proper for us to do so. Paul is taking an approach that seeks to eliminate any distractions that would hinder his audience from hearing what God would want to say. He says, there are some reasons that people are leery of mixing ministry and money. And because people have some hang-ups on ministry and money, he says, I'm not going to take any of your money. I'm going to serve you as a spiritual leader free of charge, and my pay will simply be to watch you grow in your faith. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. I think he's taking that more in the mentality of a missionary than a pastor. Okay? Because the missionary says there are obstacles to people hearing from God, and I want to remove those obstacles at any, any way I can. So Paul was a tent maker. He, he, he built tents to, to pay for his way as he shared the gospel, okay? Um, so that he would not hinder the audience from hearing he has a right to draw financial support from his ministry, but he does not. Um, somewhere along the way, God gave me a similar mindset. Um, when I'll be honest, when we started this church, one of my goals was to get to a point where I was where the church could financially support me, so that I wasn't working on the side and that I was fully available to this church. Somewhere along the way, I, I don't have that desire anymore. Our business kind of became a thing, and I kind of like going to work, and we kind of like doing the things we do. I'm stretched like crazy, but that's not all the church. That's just because somebody had four kids and, and just the things that go with life. That's not your fault. That's mine. Um, <laughs> but somewhere along the way, I quit desiring the financial support of this church. Um, does that mean this church will never support men or women? to do the work of them? No, I can't say that at all. But I can say God has given me a similar mindset as what he gave to Paul. City Church should be able to come in because of that. Because of that. Let's go back. Go back to the, the finances. Because I, as your pastor, do not expect a salary, do not expect any of these things, not the, the, the picture, yeah. Um, my first assumption is that if that's the norm. We should be able to come in lower on the personnel things and higher in the other things. It's a good assumption. Like, there's like $60,000 that you would pay a pastor that you're not paying. So surely we can adjust our finances um, and come in higher in the matters of justice, mercy, and faith. Jesus told the, the Pharisees, keep your tithe up, but let's engage in justice, mercy, and faith a little bit more, guys. Like we, Those are the more important matters. So I see some of these ministries, some of these financial categories as those categories, justice, mercy, and faith, as we care for displaced peoples and the, 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 the other people in the world that are doing ministry that we don't have the ability to do, but we have the ability to support, okay? Sam sent me some numbers yesterday. Our financial spending in 2022 um, doesn't really reflect a whole lot of our reality because there's been some changes. Number one, we were higher on payroll, ironically, uh, than these numbers. But since then, there's been some shifts and we're, we're now lower uh, like we would expect to be. Um, and then facility came in pretty, pretty, pretty close. We were just a bump over that. I don't know if some of that's due to uh, just normal cost or getting in or whatever it was. But uh, I kind of got 11% to local ministry. That's just kind of 
opportunities that we have. Uh, the, the one thing that was kind of disorienting to me was the amount that we spend on missions, which was way lower, and that was not a choice. That was uh, administrative. Who knows what happened? Uh, we, we, we had some organization and people we were giving to, and then they changed their programs, and our giving stopped. We didn't recognize it for a while. Uh, it's not that we'd quit wanted giving to missions. It's like they just had a flub on their admin uh, that that kind of threw us off. So, all that say this: our payroll has decreased significantly by thirteen percent. Missions dropped off in twenty two because of the admin. Here's the, here's the concept: if we can shift that thirteen percent that we had on payroll. And we can shift it into local ministry and missionaries or missions, then we're immediately above the norm when it comes to investing in the areas of justice, mercy, and faith. Okay, so that's the easy thing. That's already there. If I'm asking, how City Church is doing at what God has asked us to do financially. My honest answer, eh. <laughs> eh. Right? And that's not because of priorities. That's because, just to be honest, um, when I chose not to be available to the church at a full time, then there's some balls that I dropped in that process. And we have not completely accounted for uh, a lack of that and structured our church in the last five years to account for the fact that the pastor is not available all the time. Okay, if we're going to swap that for this, then we've got to adapt our structure to keep our priorities in front of us. Um, if we're asking how City Church can do better, I think the answer is really simple, right? We will do better by identifying where that 13% will be invested immediately we got 13% of our income, revenue as a church. We're going to come below the norm in personnel, right at it on facilities. Our facilities is not changing. We're not moving. We're in the heart of our city where we want to be. And boom, we've got 13% that we can put where we want to and invest it into people in our city, in our area or people that are doing the work of missions that we are not able to be a part of. Um, the needs that we should be meeting. We, here's the second, so number one, we will do better in identifying where that revenue needs to go. Who are the leaders we need to be supporting and what are the needs that we need to be meeting? That's really two questions that I have to ask. Who are the leaders we need to be supporting and who are the needs, what are the needs that we need to be meeting? That's where that money is going to go. Okay. Um, number two is we'll do better in preparing to invest the growth of generosity that we will experience as our church grows in faith. As you and everybody else that is a part and will become a part of our church grow in faith, I am 100% certain you're going to grow in generosity too. And we, as the church, will have better plans for how to invest because we're not going to take your greater generosity so that I can have a bigger salary or so that we can get a bigger building. We've already identified that those two things aren't going to happen. So any increase in generosity that our church experiences is going to be an increase of meeting needs and investing in spiritual leaders. Okay? It's not going to stay in house. We're not going to make things more comfortable for us. We're not going to make things prettier for us. We're not going to we're not going to make things wealthier for us. It's, it's any increase in generosity is an increase in meeting needs and investing in spiritual leaders elsewhere. Okay? So this is my commitment to you, and I've already gathered um, some men that are engaged in things uh, to, to help discern and pray through these matters. In return, my request from you is to commit yourself to what the Spirit of God is saying to you. Right? I'm not going to tell you what that looks like for you. I've already told you what the Bible says and how the Bible instructs us as the church to be giving and, and things like that. But like the only thing I can commit to and have 
control over is, is, is how faithful we are as a church. And we hadn't done bad. We just need to be more intentional, right? We hadn't been wasteful. We just need to be intentional. And, and, and I'm gathering those men around me that are going to help us be faithful as a church and to have plans to increase our faithfulness as you increase your faith and generosity, okay? Um, so now I'm all asking, just commit yourself to what the Spirit of God tells you. Let me read one more passage to you. Um, it's kind of the, it's like, eh, just, let's read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Here's my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year, you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Now, you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean that giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they'll have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As the scripture says, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. So when it comes to the 21st century American church, when it comes to you and me, I don't... Is the tithe still there? Yeah, I suppose it is. It's a good standard it, in some ways. But here's, here's, here's the standard I want to... I want to have you pray through is this. Because I believe the standard is, give, is, is us giving to a level that matches what he says at the beginning. The generous grace of Jesus. I believe the standard of is giving that matches the, the generous grace of Jesus that has been given to us. Though he was rich, he became poor so that we might become rich in him. He gave up everything he had so that he could give it to us. He was right with the Father and he gave it up so that we could be right with the Father. He had the riches of heaven. He gave it up so that we could have the riches of heaven. We deserve to die. He died in our place. Like there was an exchange that took place there. He had everything. And the generous grace that he had for us, it was bestowed on us. Like, I think that's the standard. Like, if, if I set a dollar amount for you, if I set a percentage amount for you, you may do that begrudgingly. And he says, I don't want you to be that way. He said, whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly, according to what you have, not what you don't have. I would give more if I had more. Now, it's, I don't want you to wrestle with it like that. I don't want you to wrestle with it as an obligation. Just simply ask, does my... Does my giving match the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Right? That's the mentality I want us to come into with the church. And I, I think percentages take care of themselves as we go through that. And the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is, is far more generous than a dime out of every dollar. You know, it's like, I want to give eagerly. Not eagerly so that we can do things that we want to do. I want to give eagerly so that we can decide what needs we need to be meeting and what leaders we need to be investing in. So here's, that's the mentality. Now as the church, here's, here's my very direct commitment to you. 
Um, I, we're going to come in under the standard, under the average when it comes to personnel. We're going to, our, our facility's kind of set and has things. We'll do projects along the way, but they're not, they're not the big dollar thing. So here's what I want immediately, the, the men that I've gathered that are going to help us discern this, immediately we should be able to have 20% of every dollar designated for meeting the needs of displaced peoples and investing in spiritual leaders doing things that we don't have the ability to do with them. Okay? Immediately, we should be able to do that, which is above average. Okay? And my second step is this. By the time we get to January 2024, that's going to be 25%. One out of every four dollars that comes through this church will immediately be invested into the kingdom through needs that we can be meeting and leaders we can be investing in. Okay. Step one: take the money that we have to reason designate. Let's hit that twenty percent mark. Step two: by the end of the year, twenty-five percent. Step three: my desire is that every year after that percentage has an increase. As our church grows in faith and generosity, the percentage that we don't hang on to but we use to invest into the kingdom of God outside the walls of this church will increase. Every year that percentage should tick up. Okay? Um, I'm excited about that. I texted Sam yesterday. And he's like, what do you think? I'm like, I'm just kind of surprised because I hadn't paid a whole lot of attention. Uh, it's not that we didn't want to prioritize things. It's like you just get in the mode of trying to get in the building, try to get in the mode of trying to get things settled, and, okay, we're there. We're settled. Now it's time to be intentional with the um, finances that God has entrusted us with. Let's be faithful to do the things he says to do with it. So there's no need to wait. Uh, we'll gather those men. We'll pray through this, um, and we'll communicate at every point of the turn. Uh, we'll immediately hit that 20% mark, and then by the end of the calendar year, um, we'll find out a way to get to 25. Here's the deal. As you increase in generosity, that number increases. Because my salary is not dependent upon a percentage of your giving. Like we're not dealing, we're, we're not functioning like that, right? If you give more, I don't get more. I don't get anything. <laughs> We got health insurance, and half of that's paid by donors outside our church, right? Um, so the more generous you are, the more generous our church is. Increase in giving will immediately increase those percentages. All I'm asking is that you look at your heart, you pray through this, and say, you know what, God, does my giving match the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? And, and you and the Holy Spirit, Y'all get together and do what, do what he leads you to, right? I'm just getting to the point now here. This is the first money sermon I've given in five years of this church existing. This is the first time. We've had living room conversations, but I've never talked to you about money in this way as a church ever. Okay? And we're not going to start now. I'm just letting you know there's some shifts that the church needs to make, and we're going to make them by faith. We're going to become more generous. And along with that is each one of us gets to look at ourselves and say, oh, there's some shifts that we need to make, be more biblical and more faithful. Just ask the questions, have the prayer time, and adapt to the Holy Spirit. Right? That's all I'm asking of you because we're going to do the same thing as a church. Um, it seems like a good time to do it. Uh, this is the last time I'm going to talk to you about money like this for a really long time. I think it's the first real tithing sermon I've ever given as a pastor. So how about that? Um, we're going to ask the question, what are the needs that we are here to meet? What are the leaders that we are here to invest in? We're going to do that as a church to the point of 20%, 25 by the end of the year. You can know that one out of every $4 that you give to our church by the end of the year will be used to increase the kingdom of God outside the walls of this church.
we're not going to build a big cathedral. We may finish out the second floor one day. <laughs> Put some windows in the walls. That'd be cool. Uh, probably no Gothic cathedral, though. They sure are pretty, though. Sure are pretty. I want to pray. Um, Andrew, y'all can close this in.